You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. And what you don't know is that every time I start the podcast, I have the same fleeting memory from WKRP in Cincinnati. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this show, but it was about this terrible radio station in Cincinnati that played all classical music. And they had this old burned-out rock and roll DJ. And in the first episode, they convert from classical music back to rock and roll. And when they do that, this guy comes alive and he tears the classical record off one of the turntables. And I think he throws Pink Floyd on the other one. And he flips the mic open. And it's like the first sign of life you see from this guy because he seems like he's just <laughs> he's so burned out. And uh, for some reason, I remember the first things he said on air were... Hello, fellow babies. And every time I start the podcast, I kind of want to start that way. Um, I'm not going to do it today, but one day, you know, stick around. One day we will start with hello, fellow babies. Anyway, great day yesterday at the bridge and wanted to mention something that is coming up this Sunday, which would be the 14th in the evening, seven o'clock in the evening. Ladies are going to have a behold worship gathering, worship and prayer for revival and a spirit of adoption. And it's going to happen at a place called The Haven in Lewisburg, Kansas. If you Google The Haven, Lewisburg, or go to our website, thebridgekc.church, uh, Lou Engel is going to be there helping to lead some of the prayer time. Um, Rachel Fa'agutu is going to be leading worship. It's going to be great. Uh, Sunday night starts at 7 o'clock. You do not want to miss it. This week, we touched on part four of our series called The Letters about the letters of Revelation. And very briefly, the worship band plays in the middle of the message. And it's terrible. It's just awful. You'll, you'll, have, you'll figure it out when you listen. Anyway, here we go. Stay with us from the bridge, Sunday morning, Letters Part 4. So uh, good to see everybody. Um, welcome. Uh, we, we did that John Mark McMillan song. We'd never done that before. And I didn't know if we were an unforeseen church or a sloppy wet church. Okay, there's, for those of you who don't know, oh, here's the deal. There's this song, and the original lyric is a sloppy wet kiss. And, Heaven be what's worth in a sloppy wet kiss. And when it, when it became popular, everybody loved it, and then there were churches that just could not bring themselves to singing that song. And so some changed it to unforeseen which was uh, horribly offensive to those who were already seeing Sloppy Wet. It was a major, it was a fight for... These are things that worship leaders fight about. You didn't know this. I'm just letting you in behind the curtain here, okay? These are things worship leaders fight about. So apparently we're unforeseen. All right. Welcome to an unforeseen church. <laughs> Take a minute a little bit and uh, just say welcome for those of you that are visiting. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, talk a little bit about kind of... What have you wandered into here? Like, what, what kind of a church is this? Uh, but before I talk about that, Sunday night, not this Sunday night, next Sunday night, a worship night uh, for uh, our ladies, uh, Behold Worship Night is down in Lewisburg at a place called The Haven. Uh, Rachel and Kelsey went and did a walkthrough of the place, and it is beautiful. The cool thing is, the, it's almost their debut item. They're, like, they have not done many events there. And the guy who built it, was so excited to be hosting a worship event. He said, this is actually what we had in mind. And he began to tell them that 
behind all the beams and behind all the drywall, they've got, they've got scripture scrawled all through this place. He's super intentional about putting it together. And so he was very glad. So next week, uh, next Sunday night at 7, there'll be more information on the web or uh, in our email. And uh, I know there's a Zoe's House event in the same room earlier. My guess is there's going to be some bleed over. Some people are just going to stay. I would guess some guys are going to sneak in. So I'm just putting that out there. Uh, no one will be thrown out. Should be a good evening down at the Haven. Giving a lot of thought about direction for the bridge and uh, over the last couple of weeks, one thing that really has stuck out for me, if you're visiting or if you're regular with us, is there's a real kind of an entrepreneurial aspect to what the Lord is doing here. And uh, it's not just that he's doing something new, it's that he's doing something new in us and bigger than us. Uh, something being entrepreneurial, it doesn't just mean that it's new, okay? If... Uh, if everyone in a neighborhood uses two widgets a week and you decide that all those people are driving 20 minutes to get their widgets and you open up a widget stand at the front of the neighborhood, that's not particularly entrepreneurial. You're providing a service that's kind of convenient, but it's, there's nothing particularly new about that. Uh, we are not just about providing a convenient service. That's not really what we're thinking of here. To think entrepreneurially, I think I fractured that word, to think like an entrepreneur in a spiritual sense is to look at our collective spheres of people that we touch and ask, what do they not even know that they need? Like, what are they not even aware of? And how can we provide that for them? The bridge has that kind of call on it, not just to provide and care for a congregation, although that is vital and that is legitimate, but not to just circle our wagons, but to look at our community and identify what is missing and then meet those needs so that your friends find Jesus and that the kingdom goes forth. Now, how do we get there? We've got to think beyond what we have and even beyond what we're capable of. Harvard Business School says entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources controlled. I like that. What can we do with more than we have? And I'm just praying in this season, I would encourage you to pray with me for opportunities for us to extend influence beyond what little we might be able to cobble together. I am asking specifically for a place that we can bring our friends, that we can have all week, a place that we can stage outreaches from, a place that we can do these worship nights in that invite the entire church of Kansas City, like across denominational lines into, maybe a coffee shop or some kind of third place where people can gather during the week, daily prayer rhythms where people come in and out and worship together. This is just kind of what's on my heart, all of which far exceeds our current resources. But vision has always got to precede provision. You've always got to talk about it and feel it and, and kind of taste it and dream about it before it ever shows up. If all we ever think about is what we can do, all we will ever do is what we can do. And I just think that the Lord has more in store for us for what we can do. This is a body that is geared towards pioneers. All right? Only pioneers would come and gather in a dance studio, with their kids in other dance studios, with a web stream that is powered by a telephone. Those of you that are watching, just so you know, the phone's a camera, so if I get a call, answer it. Okay, like, it, uh, that takes a pioneer spirit. 
Settlers look around and go, okay, we can make a life here. Nobody is saying that, all right? We, we're not saying we can make a life here. We're saying we're pioneers. got to be something more. David Livingston once said, if you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want people who will go where there is no road. More recent philosopher, Doc Brown, said, where we're going, Marty, we don't need roads. Some of you are like, you'll get that in about 15 minutes. Okay, I'm, just, I'm glad you got it. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, that was very fulfilling for me. Okay, my point is, when you, go, when you corner me, go, okay, Randy, tell me exactly where this is going. Where we're going, there are no roads. But it's, it's beyond where we are. So dream with me. That's all I'm saying. Dream, ask the Lord, be praying about this. And as you are sowing, that's what you're sowing into. It's the next if you would like to give, you can give uh, on your phone or online. Go to thebridgekc.church, and there's a donate button there. There is also our infamous big orange bucket out in the foyer, and that's how that all goes. Welcome to part four of our series we're calling The Letters, which is an overview of the letters of the church, or letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. Of course, chapter 1 was a bit of a prologue. We went through that in the first week. John is exiled to the Isle of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. And he, John has grown into old age. And suddenly, what he has been waiting for for 60 years happens. He sees Jesus. And his description of Jesus in Revelation 1 is the description of a man who is completely overwhelmed. You understand that in the Gospel of John, John is a surgeon with language. He is incredibly precise. He is so poetic in the Gospel of John. He gets to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, and it's a little bit like... like he, he has a hard time articulating what he sees to the point where he has to use analogies to describe what he's seeing. He writes almost like you did in the fifth grade. Remember you went on uh, uh, summer vacation in the fifth grade? You got back, and your fifth grade teacher said... Okay, write about your summer vacation. And you wrote, we went to Colorado. And she's like, no, 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 make it exciting. Tell me a little bit about it. And so you decided to use analogies. We went to Colorado, and the drive was so long, it was like crossing the desert on a smelly camel. You know, you wrote up something that was like something to describe what it was like. John, who's incredibly articulate in the Gospel of John, is reduced to using analogies to describe what he sees when he sees Jesus. He's like, his voice, like a trumpet. His eyes were like wool, or they were like snow. His eyes were like fire. His feet were, they were like bronze. His voice was like waters. Wait a minute, you said it was like a trumpet. It was like a trumpet underwater. It, I don't know. It was like these things. I can hear the police men taking the report later. So you saw a man with a voice that was a trumpet. No, no, I said it was like a trumpet. It wasn't really a trumpet. You said his hair was wool. No, it was like wool. Well, you're not being very specific. John's like, I'm doing the best I can. I've never seen anything like this. All I can describe is what it was like. Ultimately, he is completely overwhelmed. In John, or I'm sorry, Revelation 1, 17 and 19, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, uh, are and those that are to take place 
after this. So John gets up and he writes the next two chapters, which are these seven letters to the churches, and then he writes 18 more chapters of uh, what we call the apocalyptic writings or what is to come at the end of the age. Don't let the transition from the age we are in to the age we are going into frighten you, although it's intense. It includes tragedy, but it also includes an incredible demonstration of God's power to deliver his church on a global scale. Think of the joy you will have when you finally trust Jesus after all of the props of your life are kicked out. Right now, most of us trust Jesus plus, okay? Like, we're, we're trusting Jesus, but we're hedging our bets. We're leaning on other things that we ultimately know will disappoint us Think how pure and wonderful and joyful that trust will be when you finally admit all those things don't work. The whole point of the church is to serve as a maturing mechanism so we can stand in that hour stripped of our immaturity and our pettiness representing Jesus to the world. If you look at Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, he talks about ministry there and the whole point of the deal. He says he gave some, he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He said, I'm putting you in the church where I'm giving you all of these people to minister to you until we are at the point of the maturity level of Jesus. Some of you are like, the end times must be a long ways away. Because we are so far from that. And we are. But as these events take place, our maturity ratchets up quickly. And we will stand in that day. But we're not there yet. So we're going to challenge one another. And by a grace on our lives, we're going to get there. So all of that, those 18 chapters, are predicated by uh, chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the churches in Asia. We talked about... Uh, the first one to the Ephesian church, how he told them that I see, you know, how strong you are, but there are these other things and you have actually abandoned your first love. And then he talked to the church in Smyrna last week where he said, you're poverty stricken, but yet you are rich beyond the world's wildest imagination. Today's letter is written to the good people of Pergamum. And it is all about the idea of dissonance. We'll talk about that in just a minute, what dissonance really is. Pergamum is located, throw the map up there if you would for a second. Those of you that are watching online, you don't get to see the map. That's why you should come to church, okay? But it's just off screen here, there's a map. And Ephesus, you go up from Ephesus about 35 miles, you find Smyrna, you go up a little bit further, and you find Pergamum. Now, we talked about Ephesus and Smyrna being fairly similar, almost grown together in one big metropolis. Pergamum was a different place. It was partially because of the geography. It was centered on a mesa that was about 1,000 feet tall, and the mesa drops off to the west and to the north and to the east, it's just straight. You could only approach the town from the south through a series of terraces. And as the city grew, it began to spill down off the mesa, and life began to kind of take place down on those terraces. It's one of the reasons we want to teach our children well, is that every generation needs to learn to how to protect themselves. And the generations that lived down on that mesa were actually quite vulnerable. Pergamum was a governmental city, whereas Smyrna was focused more on the worship of the dictator, 
Pergamum was actually a place where governmental leaders lived. Revelation 2, 12 to 17, we'll start on verse 12. And the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a two-edged sharp sword. Other places it says comes out of his mouth. Sword comes out of his mouth. In these introductions, it refers back to Revelation 1.16 where John is describing him and where he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It's so interesting. In the middle of John's description where he uses so many analogies, his hair, it's like wool. His eyes are kind of like fire. When it gets to this, it says, out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. I can almost hear the scribe go, so it was like a sword? He's like, no, that part was real. Like, that I have nailed. There was a sword coming out of his mouth. Something about the sword that came from Jesus' mouth was so real that John could not say it was like that. It was the real deal. And the sword represents the word of the Lord, and he tells them that the word is coming to you, and it's going to cut a little bit. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of the Lord is active, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of spirit and soul, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a reason his mouth has a sword coming out of it, because his words divide between those who will accept them and those who refuse. And even among those who accept them, his word, his, that sword divides even further between those who accept them and then do them, or accept them and refuse. Now, the Lord loves unity. He loves it. Psalm 132 tells us that it is good and pleasant for brothers to dwell together. It says there's actually an anointing that comes on people who are unified. But unity, real unity, comes around truth, not compromise. And much of what we see in the world of church unity is more like a ceasefire. It's more like, you know, there's about eight things we're not going to talk about so we can sit at the table together and say we're unified. We're not actually unified. We're just deciding not to talk about important things. His word actually divides at times, like a sword. When the church really examines the word of God, it pierces and it divides. Matthew 10, 34 says, don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. That picture of the sword reappears at the end of the letter with a very specific reason for being there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Jesus will confront the church in Pergamum with his word, and it's going to cut a little bit. But before he starts with this divine surgery, he makes a couple observations about him. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He said, I understand where you live, and it you're like in Satan's hometown. How would you like Jesus to tell you, congratulations, you're in Satan's hometown? There are multiple angles to explain or, or think about why Jesus said that. I'll give, I'll give you four real quick, but there's probably one that it leans on the most. Pergamum was the center of pagan worship for the region, especially the worship of Aslepius Soter. Soter is the word that gives us the word soteriology or the study of salvation. We would, in Christian circles, soteriology would be the study of Jesus. 
but in greater philosophical circles, it refers to the study of uh, what saves us. And the word eslepios was regarded, uh, connected to medicine. He was a doctor from 800 years ago before this. And they thought that because he was such an excellent doctor that perhaps salvation came through medicine. So that was a center of worship for that. Now we use medicine, okay? Science is a gift from God for us to explain the universe, but the gift is not the giver. And they just got a little sidetracked and thought that the gift was the giver. So it could have been that. It could have been that um, they were also the center of the Babylonian priesthood. The Babylonian priests were trained in Pergamum. It could be that it was the center of political power. And wherever you see political power focused, there is a ratcheted up activity of both angels and demons. It's just true. We lived in Washington, D.C. for a while. Place has critters, I'm telling you. Also angels, but it's a, it is a, such power concentrated there. There were times we would literally say, we got to go across the river. we got to get out of the district. we we just got to go five miles into Virginia and it just feels, and it, it's different. Where there's political power is focused, there's also demonic power focused. But most likely, what he was referring to here was that in Pergamum, there was a, uh, wasn't so much a statue as it was a throne to Zeus. Take a look at this picture here. This throne to Zeus, it's about 35 feet tall. It's a 500 square foot base. And that is where in their mind, Zeus would sit. So when they say, we know that you have, you have the throne of Satan there, it's easy for the, the Pergamumites, Pergamimians, whatever you would call them, to go, oh, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, that's the throne of Satan. That's where Zeus sits. Now, some of you are looking at it going, that's a fairly modern picture. Does that really in Turkey? No, it's not. Because you know where the throne of Zeus ended up? It was disassembled in the late 1800s, and it was moved to where it sits today in Berlin. Think about the next 75 years of German history after they moved the throne of Satan to a museum. And the next exhibit in this museum is a set of gates they moved from ancient Babylon that were called the gates of hell. They moved the gates of hell next to the throne of Satan. These things have power. This is, this is not just interesting, you know, sociology. So when he says, I understand you live where Satan has his throne, they've got some kind of grid for that. And he is coming with a sword in his mouth for a place called the seat of Satan, yet he acknowledges something powerful. He says in verse 13, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. That phrase that he uses to honor Antipas, who was killed for his faith, is a faithful witness. It is the same term that was used in reference to Jesus in the first chapter. Jesus, wanting to honor this martyr, uses the same description that was given for him. He said, Antipas, if you were seeking to be like me, you did it. You were faithful till the end. Now you can search scripture front to back and I have already told you everything this morning that we can find out about Antipas. There is nothing else. We don't know that he pastored a church anywhere. We don't know that he was a great leader. All we know is that he was faithful. Heaven will primarily be populated 
by people like Antipas who were pretty much unknown for anything but were faithful. It will be people like him that are at the top of the org chart who Jesus said, Antipas, you stood faithful like I did. Those are the people who achieve greatness in the kingdom. When Jesus said the first will be the last, he meant for a long time. I cringe, I'm telling you, I cringe at the idea of Christian celebrity. It just gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's, and I don't care that somebody is popular or that I, I'm just burdened that some may trade a few decades of notoriety and lose eternal acknowledgement from the Father and make that trade. Now, not everyone who is famous has made that trade. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that so many who have gone off in that direction and achieved greatness in that realm have to trade away greatness for eternity. So here's the scene. Jesus is coming with a sword to a city where Satan dwells, and he commends them, um, those among them who have been faithful, especially this guy Antipas, this faithful witness who we never hear of before or since. Jesus said, he's with me. This is an amazing church of faithful people. Yet there is dissonance among them. Now, I referenced dissonance earlier this morning, and sometimes dissonance is better talked about, other times it's just better demonstrated. Okay, so if the worship band can come up. I said to Rachel, I said, could you give us a picture of dissonance? Because it's, it's a, an, a term of sound, and this might be the best way to express dissonance. Okay. Let's be dissonant for us for a moment. Nick lost his guitar pick. Two, three, four. That's excellent. You like okay, it? okay, we won't torture you anymore, but you get the idea, okay? Thank you. That was dissonance. That was horrible, yes. Some of you are on a web stream listening to headphones. You're like, oh, what was that? No. Can you imagine on your way home downloading that and telling your friends, yeah, we're going to listen to this for a couple days. We're going to put this on repeat. Like, you would have a breakdown. Like, okay, that would, like, your plants would die in your house if you listen to that because it is musical tones that do not go together dissonance is when things don't fit together they they're, they're not exactly the same and dissonance is all around us maybe not musically but there's cognitive dissonance people believe things that are opposite sometimes you believe things that are opposite i believe it's important to eat good and I am headed straight to Freddy's. Okay? I believe both. And it's like there's a, do you understand the dissonance? Those things don't go together. You can talk about them, but they're not the same. And there is a spiritual dissonance where we, we're, we're faithful in some areas, and yet in other areas we're way off. And it's about appealing, as appealing to the Lord as the worship band was just a minute ago. Okay? He's like, hey, you take the headphones off. This is bad. This is bad. And Pergamum was a city full of dissonance. 
where they were faithful, but yet there were other things going on that just didn't gel with what they said they believed. Here's the dissonance. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. What's the sin of Balaam? Where Balaam? You mean Balaam the, like from the Old Testament? Yes. Balaam was a non-Jewish prophet in the Old Testament who was contracted by a pagan king to curse God's people. Like they just hired him and said, can you curse these people? We need, we need a good cursing done. And Balaam was a piece of work, like prophet for hire to pagan kings. But he couldn't bring himself to curse God's people. He actually tells Balak in Numbers 23.8, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? But Balak pushed him. No, 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 you got it. We paid you, okay? The Venmo has hit your account. You are, you are, you got to curse those people. Puts him up on stage, gives him the microphone, and expecting him to curse the people of Israel, in Numbers 24, 5, and 6, Balaam prophesies, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beyond the water, and Balak's head is exploding. This is not the prophecy for which I paid. I paid you to curse them. And three times Balaam does this. He gets up, he's like, okay, okay, I got one, I got one. And as soon as he starts praising the people of Israel. So he has this. He is faithful in that he will not curse God's people, and it drives Balak crazy. But there was another side to him. Something happened. Second Peter tells us that Balaam, it uses this phrase, loved the wages of wrongdoing. Jude writes that he made an error for the sake of gain. He did something for financial gain. What he did in Numbers 31, it tells us Balaam did something very wrong, even as, though, even as he refused cursing them. And what we discover when we get to the book of Revelation is what Balaam did was he told Balak how to entice the people of Israel into sin. He's like, I'm not going to curse him directly. Like, I would never do that. But I bet I can get a bank shot. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you didn't hear me say this. But if you do this and this, they'll fall into sexual immorality. And they did. There was a dissonance in Balaam's life. It was admirable that he wouldn't curse them. But yet there was this activity that was very, very difficult for the people of Israel and caused great sin. It was dissonance. You're like, how could you live that way? How could you have the inner strength to get up and say, I won't curse them, but on the side go, this is what you need to do. People live like that every day. They insist that they would never do this, but at the same time, they're doing this. There's a dissonance in their life. We have any James Taylor fans? A couple? All right, we're going to do something. Even if there have been none, we do it anyway. Uh, I need... A, well, let's say he's going to volunteer for me. Yes, can we? Well, let's say, grab a microphone, grab it, because I am assuming that James Taylor is big in the Samoan culture. Uh, mm. Not so much. Okay, good, perfect, Maybe. perfect, perfect. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, get a microphone, get a microphone. Oh, All right. right, so your leader. Check one two. I need you over here because one, two, the one, we're already two. getting hate mail Check from the one, people two. online. Okay. One two. Um, 
So this is what I want, we were going to do. And Walesa is going to be your leader. So this means you need to join in. Okay. This is our first Did ever. Did you say something about James Taylor? Yeah, our first ever James Taylor sing-along. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we're just going to do a line. You know any James Taylor songs? Perfect. Okay. So you may need to help him. You may need to help him. Here, if you need it, that's him. If you need help, okay. Help him out. Help him out here. How sweet oh, it is. Oh, I know is. this is to be loved by okay, you. Okay, good, okay, good, good. All right, you got that okay, one. Okay, okay I know James Taylor. Me and James Taylor, we go way back. Yeah, okay, we okay. We go way back. All we'll right. We go way back. Yeah. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen lonely times that I could not find a friend. I don't know this one. Some, okay, oh, great, great. Got somebody she, she's got it. All right, you well, next come time. Up here next all right, time. all right, put it ne- Next James Taylor, sing along, she's up. Okay. okay you're done. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Because, Say, why are we singing James Taylor's song? Because James Taylor's life was full of dissonance. Like, his music, oh, man, James Taylor music is the equivalent of a cup of coffee, hardwood floors, and a flannel shirt, right? Like, it's just instantly, you, you go to that place, it's harmonious, it's warm, it's, you know, that guitar, it's so nice. But it, it was so at odds with his life. So at odds with his life. 1979. James Taylor was the first artist signed to Apple Music, which was not owned by Apple, the computer. It was actually the label the Beatles started. The Beatles created Apple Music and then looked around and said, who should be, and recorded with James Taylor. In 1979, he played in front of a crowd at Central Park. 250,000 people showed up for a James Taylor concert. Everybody wanted to see James Taylor in Central Park. Nobody wanted to see a heroin addict. But he was the same guy. James Taylor struggled through most of his career with a deep heroin problem. Into the 1980s, when somebody convinced him that he could get off heroin if he started using meth. Phrase bad to worse mean anything? Finally got clean in the 80s, but for most of his life... What you felt when you heard his music was not what you would have felt up near to him. That's why he wrote the second verse of Fire and Rain. He's actually writing about his heroin problem. He says, won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. You've got to help get me through to see another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand and I won't make it any other way. Such dissonance in this guy's life. Now that's disturbing to think about that. But the dissonance of public portrayal and how we live our lives is all around us and to some extent within our own lives. There was more to the dissonance of the life of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum. Revelation 2.15 says, So also some of you have held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about this two weeks ago. Nicolaitans were those that drew a distinct line between those who were leaders in the church and what they would call the lay people or the uneducated and the untrained. Pastors, if your church is full of real lay people who are uneducated and untrained, that's your own fault. That's not God's plan for the church. But they held to this. So in addition to their two-faced life of faith, this strong distinction between the professional ministers and the lay people, in addition to all this... They were living with the weight of living a double life. Old Christian musician Steve Taylor had a line from a song that said, double lives last half as long. 
So let's just apply this to a second to the idea of personal relationships. How would your relationships with those that you love, how would they go if you were this duplicious in them, if there was this much dissonance in your life? Men, if you're married, if you mowed the yard on Monday, washed the car on Tuesday, cleaned out the garage on Wednesday, and then Thursday through Sunday night, you went on a drinking bender and didn't show up until Sunday night, what part of the week do you think your wife would remember? Dissonance. Well, wait a minute. I was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I was awesome. Yeah, and Thursday through the weekend, you were a bum. What makes its mark? Dissonance in our lives is like that. And the Lord looks at us and he goes, oh, you're faithful, but man, you get this other thing going on. And it's hard for him to actually honor the faithfulness when there's this dissonance. That's the kind of dissonance they were presenting to the Lord. And it's the kind we create when the notes of our lives are out of harmony. Dissonance occurs in a song, but sometimes it comes to an end. What is it called? Uh, I'm going to put our, our uh, guitar players, our bass player on. on the, when, when, when the dissonance comes to an end, what is it called? Resolution or resolve. I actually did know that. Are you impressed? I just want to see if you knew it. That's good. Okay, it's resolution. There is a plan for resolution for the dissonance in our lives. He tells us in Revelation 2.16, I'll just read the first two verses because we could park on that. Therefore, repent. Repent. Therefore, because you can't bear to live this double life any longer, because you can't bear the pressure of being one person Monday through Wednesday and somebody else Thursday through Sunday, because God acknowledges that in the deep recesses of your life there is this dissonance Therefore, because of all that, repent. Some of you are going, I feel like he's telling these churches to repent a lot. It's because it's a really good solution. Like it actually works. And we have mischaracterized repentance. We've simplified it just to the point of sorrow. Oh, people are sorry for something. They've repented. It's, it's a little more complicated. It's part of it. You need to be sorry, but it's, sorrow is rampant in our world. There's a lot of sorry people that aren't remotely repentant. Almost every human being on earth is sorrowful, sorrowful for their shortcomings. Nobody celebrates them. Nobody looks at the train wrecks of their life as a good one. They're sorrowful, but that's not repentance. How are sorrow and repentance different? To repent has a couple of connotations. It is to turn and it's to think differently. You can't repent from wrongdoing without turning away from it. And you can't turn away from it without thinking differently. And you can't think differently without actually being sorrowful for it. It's, it's all in one. You need to do all of them. And when we hear that repentance is a turn, we think of it as a smooth U-turn. Don't you guys love it when you go to do a U-turn and it actually like is smooth? This morning, I made a quick Starbucks run. Went out here the wrong way, had to go right, had to do a U-turn, was driving our, our Mazda. I was able to make a one continuous smooth U-turn, felt like Mario Andretti. It was awesome. <laughs> Never happens in our van. Physically impossible. You need 40 acres to turn our big white van around. So in the van, you know that if you're going to turn around and go the other way, you need to do at least a three-point turn. Maybe a nine-point turn if the narrows were. But it's like, you do this... And you do this, then you do that, and that's what it takes to turn around. 
Repentance is a little bit like a three-point turn. The beginning, you identify these areas of dissonance in your own life, and you admit it. Okay, these things don't go together. I can't do this and do that. I can't say this and feel that in my heart. There's a dissonance here. As believers, you should always be looking for areas of dissonance in your life, most often between your speech and your thought life. And I'm telling you, I search my heart on a regular basis. Lord, reveal to me, because it feels so justified in my heart that if you don't reveal it to me, I, I won't see it. So you look for those areas where you say one thing, but in your heart, you know, you, you talk about, yeah, you know, I've really forgiven that person. Yet when they, their face pops up, <clears throat> but you meant it when you said it, but you also felt it when you were, <clears throat> it's areas of dissonance. You're not meant to live that way. It's highly uncomfortable. It's like having an all day heart attack. Should not be. That's only one point of repentance. Point two would be explore the sorrow that that has caused. Like, really feel it. You're like, I don't feel sorry. you got to think about it a little harder. Think about the sorrow you caused in somebody else. There are times we sin against ourselves. There are times we sin against others. We feel fine. But we've got to explore the sorrow. So sorrow is a part of that. You ask to, where are the areas of dissonance? You sit with the sorrow for a while. And then that third point, you continue on. But you continue on in another direction. That means putting one foot on the gas and propelling you away from the things that were sin in your life. We used to do this little trick when we were youth pastoring. And the crazy thing is, it works. We would ask our, our teenagers, you know, who were struggling with various areas of sin, write down where you are when you sin that way. You're like, you mean where I am in my heart? No, physically, where you are. And they would write down where that sin took place. I'd say, okay, don't go there. Most of them, it worked. It was like, there was something about physically separating themselves from the, the actual physical place. It may be mentally or, or somehow, but you've got to separate and get some distance from that place or that heart condition or that thought process that gets you to sin. I have, over the past two years, mulled over a couple of situations in my mind that lead me into sin. Not rampant life, but I mean, it's just, there's a dissonance in my life. And I have had to discipline myself to go, I can no longer entertain those thoughts, even if I'm justified in those thoughts, because they lead me unto sin. Yeah, but what about that? It's behind you. Remember, you turned, you went around, it's in the rearview mirror. Quit focusing on it. Quit thinking about it. Quit mulling it over. No good will come from it, and when you are near it, you sin. He's like, you need to make this three-point turn and sin, and, and get away from sin. And if you don't, once you recognize the dissonance, you actually sin more. It says in James 4, 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, that's sin. So you've, you've identified that dissonance in your life, and you're like, oh, that's sin, and now if I don't deal with it, it's like double sin. <laughs> I was happier when I didn't ask the question. And you literally pile on sin on your own spirit that requires repentance and turning to get away from this is so serious that in resolving this conflict, he tells them the consequences if they don't 
Revelation 2.16, he says, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's like, that, that sword that John saw, that wasn't for cutting barbecue. That sword was to war against those who understand where the area of dissonance in their life is, but they don't address it in their own life. We've got a really romantic view of the Bible, but the Bible is primarily a weapon. It cuts against lies and falsehoods, and it divides our hearts between bone and marrow. And when we recognize dissonance in our lives, areas that are not in alignment with what he is calling us and how he's calling us to live, but we refuse to address them or refuse to make the changes, we find ourselves at odds with the whole of Scripture. And it comes against us like a sword. God has energy on the idea of our repentance because he knows that if we have some revelation of what he is saying to us and we do not come into alignment with his desires, we have no ability to call anybody else higher. Well, I mean, what's the great, what is the great criticism of the church by unbelievers? Hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. And there are times it's unfair. Okay, there are times when things are, are, are thrown. I, I follow a pastor on Instagram who uh, posted a picture from an NBA game where he was in the second row and even stated, a friend gave me these tickets. It was Pastor Appreciation Month, and that is how I got to sit here and spent the next, like, eight pictures defending himself to people who were, you know... Throw. There are times when the criticism of the church is just not... You know, I mean, somebody took him to a basketball game. But there are times when the criticism is right. And when there is a dissonance in our lives and there are things that the Lord has revealed to us, but we are smoothing over them and yet saying, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. That dissonance, that, that's dangerous. I want to address every bit of dissonance in my own heart. Man, I want to search it out. I just want, like, Lord, fillet me. And show me what's in there now, because I don't want to face your sword down the road. For those who can set their hearts to do this and complete that turn of repentance, there is a freedom and a joy that you cannot imagine. I want to ask if Rachel would come up. We're just going to go back into worship for a minute here. Revelation 2.17, this is how this all resolves. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He's not just writing to Pergamum. He's saying, everybody, listen. Listen. To the one who conquers, who lasts until the end, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. He said, to the one who endures, I will give provision, and I will give this white stone that nobody knows. One of the memories of the past 15, 20 years that has burned most distinctly in my mind is when we finalized my daughter Zoe's adoption. Zoe's a 15-year-old. And uh, I remember a couple things about that day. I remember getting a speedy ticket on the way. I really thought I would get out of that. We're going to, get a, we're going to finalize adoption. He's like, that's fine. Here's your fine. But I also remember coming home, and they give you a stack full of papers. They, they, you actually... You uh, swear an oath before a judge that sounds a lot like a wedding vow. 
Do you vow to provide? Do you vow this will be your daughter? It's beautiful. I'm in tears. We get home and we go through our paperwork and we have a birth certificate that has her name, Savannah Zoe Bolander, on it and lists Kelsey as her mother and me as her father. And I just wept. We stuck it up on our little cork board in our kitchen for the longest time. With that verse, we given a new name written on a white stone on a, on a little post-it next to us. Why? Because I realized if the Lord tarries hundreds of years and some archaeologist is going through the storage unit that my kids abandoned, they're going to find this birth certificate. There will be no concept that she was ever anything than my daughter. It's like, in eternity, she's mine. She's mine now, but in eternity, she's mine. No one will know the difference. He gives us a white stone. The angels in heaven will never know the fullness of your story. All they'll know is that name that he gave you. To those who've repented. I am so excited about transitioning into the age to come. I just am. Am I a little anxious? What about I? The world he is building for us and is calling us to build with him is going to so far exceed any trouble, even the dissonance that we're thinking of. Oh, I don't know how to, oh, this is going to be hard. He's like, yeah, it's going to be hard, but boy, is it going to be worth it. Boy, is it going to be worth it. Stand with me. Let's just take a moment and worship the Lord. Purify my heart. Let me be happy. 